everybody. This is Jim Robbins, and this is the Good and Noble Heart Podcast. And uh, this week, Drew Farley is with me. He is the author of God Without Religion. Can it really be that simple? Uh, but many of you also know him as the author of The Naked Gospel. And um, there's something going on in the church today that I, I call an identity reformation, much like the earlier Protestant reformations and uh, other turning points in the church's history. One of the things that I think is happening today is an identity reformation. In other words, we're returning to um, the real true offer of Jesus. We're getting the religious drapery off, the religious language off, and returning to a gospel that is more than just get your sins forgiven, go to heaven, and be a really good boy in the meantime. And Drew's books do that really well, and I think he's a major voice in this conversation. So, uh, we're going to be doing a, a series of podcasts, shorter podcasts, but we're going to go deeper uh, into some of the issues in his newest book, God Without Religion. So, Drew, it's good to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, let's start by defining um, religion, because I know what you mean by that, and many of your readers would know what you mean, but, um, y you know, religion has a long history and some may misinterpret what we mean. So what do you mean by that in terms of the book? Yeah, well, on the first page of the book, I actually define the word religion. You can trace the word uh, back to the Latin re, which means again, and ligare, uh, which means to bind. You know, ligare is where we get our word uh, ligament from, and that's what binds our bodies together. And so Ray and Ligare together, they essentially mean a return to bondage. And, you know, that's the definition of religion. And yet Jesus said the truth would set us free. So can you have God without bondage? Can you have God without religion? And I'm saying you can. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're not defining it in the old classic sense that religion, like C.S. Lewis might define it, religion is is simply the relationship with God um, and all that that entails. We're, we, we're talking about the distorted version that tends to be law-based, not grace-based, that tends to misunderstand the commands of Jesus and all that. Um, so, so now that we've kind of set the groundwork for that, Let's let's talk about how the law relates to a Christian, because there's a lot of misunderstanding there in terms of its use, its purpose, and uh, I'm often asked the question, I know you are, can the law be a useful guide for holiness for Christians? You know, I know we're not saved through it, they'll say. You know, it's not works, but can it be a useful guide to help us navigate life, to make decisions, uh, that kind of thing? Can it or can't it? Well, it, it can't. And the reason that it cannot is because the scripture very clearly tells us, you know, first of all, we Christians are dead to the law. Uh, we Christians are not under the law. We Christians are not supervised by the law. In Galatians, uh, it says that. And then finally, uh, Christ is the end of the law uh, for righteousness to all of us who believe. Now, what happens with those passages is that people come along and they essentially rewrite them. And they say that we are dead to the law for salvation. We are not under the law for salvation. 
Uh, it gets tougher when you see in Galatians that we're not under the supervision, we're not supervised by the law, uh, but they would say that's just for salvation. And then, of course, Christ is the end of the law just for salvation. So as they rewrite these scriptures, essentially, uh, what they're doing is is precisely what the Galatians were doing when Paul called them foolish. He said, having begun by the Spirit, are you now? And so they were switching methods. They had begun by the Spirit, not the law, but then they were later on using the law as a means of self-improvement or of perfection, perfectionism, essentially. And so, you know, that's that's what's happening 2,000 years later is we're essentially uh, fashioning a safety net uh, using the Ten Commandments. People say, well, yeah, I, and I know we're not under the 613 laws, uh, but we're still under the Ten. And then, of course, you say, well, you ever send any Friday night emails? Do you ever do any Saturday yard work? Because that's one of the Ten. Uh, you know, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. People say, oh, no, 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 we're free from the Sabbath. Okay, so it's the nine commandments, you know, and so you see what we're doing. We're whittling down God's law to get it the way that we like it so that it's comfortable and palatable. And yet the scriptures speak very clearly. We're dead to the law. We're not under the law. Christ is the end of the law for us. And so while we're fashioning this safety net out of nine commandments, I think what God is basically saying to us is cut through that net and, and walk, walk the tightrope of grace with me. And essentially, you will, uh, as crazy as it sounds, you will find your balance in Jesus Christ. It's a trust issue. I mean, we're, we're scared of immorality. We're scared of sin. And so we start fashioning this safety net out of nine commandments. It's interesting, a bit coincidental, I think, that uh, there are nine fruit of the Spirit, uh, <laughs> and then there's nine commandments that people are latching on to. Uh, and so the question is, what is your source? Uh, you know, you can, you can have the nine uh, commandments, or you can have the nine attributes of Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, Romans tells us it, those who are led by the Spirit— are not under the law. Yeah, that's great. I mean, the law is given for people who don't have spirit. And so it's an odd thing that we're trying to carry on our backs as in addition to the spirit we already possess. And this is not a new conversation. I mean, if you go back to Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council, that was a huge turning point. Um, some of the leadership of the church are asking the same question in terms of, well, in terms of the new Gentiles that are coming under God's family and under grace. And they're saying, some are saying, well, yes, but they need to do X, Y, Z. They need to take on these particular aspects of the law, just like you're saying we do today. Let's try and retain the Ten Commandments. Well, they were, were trying to retain certain things for the Gentiles who never had the law in the first place, and now they're supposed to have grace plus come under this whole new system of law that they never had. And it's really interesting. I noticed this the other day that um, James, which is probably why I often have the, have the most trouble with James's letter out of all the New Testament letters, he says, he says, you know, after they talked about this and kind of decided, yes, we're not going to have the Gentiles um, take upon any other things or any to-do list other than Jesus. And then he says, 
It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. You know, everybody says, yay. Instead, (laughs) we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And you're like, really, James? I mean, I thought I thought we just had this discussion that we weren't going to add anything to the gospel of Jesus for them. And yet James, even James, at the Jerusalem Council, wants to throw in, okay, but here are some minor things that they still need to hold on to. Mm-hmm. And I just found that astounding. Um, and I think most people would be surprised that um, sin is 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 not only neutral to the law, it actually arouses the law. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, you know, Romans says that the law arouses uh, sinful passions, that the sinful passions were aroused by the law. Then the Romans also tells us that uh, the law came in so that sin might increase. And so it's the age-old... Uh, thing of, you know, you tell someone not to do something and and all it does is excite the flesh to want to do it. And, uh, you know, whether it's uh, thou shalt not this or thou shalt not that, uh, basically the thou shalt turn into uh, an automatic appeal to the flesh and human effort is excited to try to obey. And then you get the best result of human effort, which is failure. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I mean, the, the, the Israelites promised that, um, they, they were at the foot of the mountain and Moses read the law to them and they said, and I quote, we will obey everything. And then of course the old Testament story is one of failure upon failure and them not doing everything written in the law. And so, you know, today we Christians, especially as you mentioned, you know, if we're Gentiles, here we are claiming that we've got a shot at keeping the law. Well, I mean, the Apostle Paul, one of the most devoted Pharisees of all, couldn't even keep thou shalt not covet. Uh, and that's one of the nine. It's not just one of the ten. It's one of the nine that we like to hang on to. So, you know, we Gentiles, Ephesians says we didn't have the law. We were without a covenant. We were without hope. We were without God. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. And so the new covenant message for us as Gentiles is here. You can have the new or you can have nothing at all. And for the Je- for the Jew, though, it was the opposite. The message was let go of the old and hang on to the new. But for the Gentile, there was no old. And so if you go into a Christian bookstore or listen to Christian television or radio, I mean, you're going to hear people debating this law or grace, law or grace, shouldn't we have a balance? And the reality is that if if you're a Gentile, you were never even invited to the law. And that's a very important point. Yeah, I think you've given the book an example of, um, was it down south somewhere that they wanted, the, the debate was raging over whether to take a monument to the Ten Commandments out of the court. And um, they decided, in fact, to do that, to remove it. And uh, some Christians were up in arms. In fact, one guy screams, don't touch my God. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. that is telling right there. Um, and sin is really opportunistic. 
I mean, you know, this this relationship between sin and the law that the that the law inflames and encourages it, like like Paul said, it, it actually made it worse for him to behave, not better. It, it's kind of like a burglar who sees an open window in an apartment building, you know, his entry point, so he can go in and steal. Mm-hmm. And so sin uses the law like that burglar uses that open window. But many people say, oh, well, shouldn't it be a nice kind of a nice guide for good living? Well, if you want to fail more, if you want to be more sinful, then go ahead and use it. And I wanted to ask you why you think it turns out that way. Why do you think sin is actually amped up if we tend to use the law as a rule or a guidebook for Christian living? Well, you know, I think it comes down to the source that you are exciting. And so what happens is grace excites God's spirit, but the law excites the flesh. And so basically, whenever I see a standard, I try to live up to it. Whenever I see 10 standards, I try to live up to them. And whenever I'm under 631 or 613 standards, then I try to live up to them. And so you know, if you put this over an individual, over over a society, then humans will, by by their nature, they will inevitably just uh, try their best to perform up to that standard. And so the law is exciting human effort, and you're going to get the best product you can get from human effort. And And the bottom line is that human effort was never designed to be like God. We cannot do it. That was the sales pitch in the garden, uh, that in the day you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. You will know good from evil. And obviously their goal was to uh, do good and avoid evil. It, it wasn't even a wrong motive from the outside. I mean, Adam and Eve, they they had probably never even seen sin before. But what they were doing was saying, wow, God is beautiful. God is awesome. I want to be godly. And so through human effort, they took matters into their own hands and drew a ring around themselves, essentially, and said, I'm going to be lord of this ring here, and uh, I'm going to run run everything and call the shots and try to be godly. Well, today, you know, we can have that as our goal, and yet God doesn't honor that. He doesn't... Uh, bless that. He's not looking at that as a good thing. In fact, uh, you know, Paul writes about that and says that, are you trying to perfect yourself by the flesh? And he makes fun of it, calling it foolish. And, and so, you know, that's that's the reason that this happens, is that uh, the law excites the flesh. And what grace does is when a person and all their ego and all their pride and all their need for human effort is just deflated by grace. And so then the Holy Spirit can do his work in his way because he operates in the midst of freedom. And that's what's so curious about all this. God God won't mix his ways with law. He only agrees to operate in the midst of freedom. Yeah, that's good. And I think if you look at people um, in many congregations, inside and out of congregations, who have this idea that the law is a useful tool for kind of shaping them up, or, or at least not allowing them to stray, they tend to look like the most tight, inhibited, rigid, ungracious people you could possibly meet. 
mm-hmm. be- because that's the end result of it. The end result of, of using the law inappropriately like that for the Christian is self-righteousness. And I think that much of the message we're, that people are putting out there today is really the message of the Judaizer. Mm-hmm. It, it's the it's what they were facing in Acts. It's the grace, but you got to add a few other things for righteous living. And so um, let's kind of segue into now that we kind of have a place for the law, and we know that it's not for Gentiles because it was never given to us, um, and we know that it's for people who don't yet have the Spirit um, indwelling in them. Let's move into what were Jesus' two ministries, because uh, this chapter was pure gold for me. I think it, I think it uh, awakens some issues and will help us reinterpret some of the things Jesus said that you just can't soft serve, and mm-hmm. there's a reason why you can't. So can you talk about the two ministries of Jesus there? Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, everybody's acquainted with uh, the Jesus who says things like uh, uh, love, love your neighbor, uh, love your God. Uh, We're acquainted with the Jesus who talks about love and light and the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God that is coming and the new covenant in his blood. I mean, this is this is your friendly neighborhood Jesus, but there is there is another side to Jesus' ministry, and I'm talking about the Lord with a sword. I mean, saying, cut off your hand, uh, pluck out your eye, be perfect, sell everything, uh, and this, this is the second ministry of Jesus. He's not just introducing the new covenant that's on its way, but he's also burying people under the old covenant, he's saying, you, you've you heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, don't even look at a woman with lust. And you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I tell you, don't even get angry with someone. And so he's taking that bar, that bar that the high jumpers will jump, and he's raising it, and then he's raising it again. And, you know, uh, in the Vancouver Olympics here recently, they had that uh, uh, ski race that, that they were reaching 80, 90, over 90 miles an hour during the trials, during the practices, and they just uh, decided this is not safe. And so they they moved the starting point of the race down lower on the mountain. Well, what Jesus is doing is the opposite. He's raising it to the peak of the mountain, and then he's the only one that can ski down it, and he earns the gold medal. And then he says, don't you dare go down that mountain. It'll kill you. Uh, but I, I'll give you this medal and it's credited to you as righteousness. And so it's as if you performed perfectly, but you can never perform perfectly. And so I'm warning you stay off that mountain. And, and, you know, Galatians talks about two mountains, the the law mountain and the mountain of grace, so to speak. There's two, two children of Abraham and two mountains and they're compared. And, and basically, The bottom line here is that Jesus' mission was accomplished. He showed our inability. He showed that apart from him, we can do nothing. And, you know, if we don't see that, then we're going to hang Be Ye Perfect from our mirror, you know, and drive to work every day and look at it, memorize it, and try to be perfect. And that's not Jesus' point. Uh, We have to see the two ministries of Jesus and put them in context because many times he's talking to 
Jewish people that are arrogant, prideful, full of themselves. They think they're doing just fine. And you look at the rich man, for example. I mean, it says he looked on the rich man and he loved him. Well, but then he told him to go sell everything. So what kind of love is that? Well, apparently it's it is love. It's a tough love because you're pointing out to someone that the road that they're on is not the right road and they need to get off uh, that road and choose another path. And that's that's what Jesus is doing. Yeah, the rich man, he went away sad and the Pharisees, they went away mad, but mission accomplished. And that was Jesus whole point. Yeah, and I want to actually read a couple more of those from from what you were quoting. These are from the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, you know, for example, if your right eye causes you to sin, he says, gouge it out and throw it away. And now this isn't old, in the Old Testament. This is, this is Jesus speaking. Mm-hmm. He says, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, if you're reading this as a believer post-cross and resurrection— but you don't understand how biblical history has unfolded and how Jesus' own ministry has unfolded, you'll want to apply everything without question. You'll say, well, well, wait a minute, then if I've sinned with my eye, like looking lustfully or, or coveting or whatever that might be, I'm actually supposed to gouge it out? And as you point out in the book, um, you say, well, there's two two typical responses people have. One is to kind of say, well, Jesus didn't really mean that. Mm-hmm. You know, was, he was just kind of using euphemistic language, kind of hyperbole. Well, actually more like accurately, hyperbole, over-the-top language, to say, okay, guys, I just expect a little more from you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the other one is to take it so seriously that, that no, he meant it literally. So... Um, I better be extra, extra careful to make sure I never do any of these things because it says I could be, my body could be, quote, thrown into hell. So um, I bet there are many times folks have read those passages, tried without thinking to apply it to themselves instead of seeing that Jesus' ministry was to people, he was born under the law to people under the law. Mm-hmm. And and that was his audience. And if we don't respect that context, he hadn't reached the cross, which, as you as you wonderfully point out, is the dividing line of history. Um, if we expect what he says before the cross to mirror what happened after the cross, we'll be really confused. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually like one of your suggestions to to open towards the New Testament, where the New Testament cover pages, where it launches into the book of Mark, tear mm-hmm. it out. You know, you said one guy in your audience actually stood up, a pastor, tore that cover page from the New Testament out and put it in uh, later in the book of Acts, I'm sorry, later in the book of Mark at the point of the crucifixion and resurrection. I mean, mm-hmm. that that is a brilliant idea. So say a little bit about that dividing line of history and what the difference is in those two ministries of Jesus. Yeah, well, you know, it is true. You, you go to Matthew chapter 1 and you basically flip back a page and, uh, and there you see it in big block letters. But as you pointed out, I mean, Hebrews tells us that a covenant, which is, by the way, the same word as a testament, a covenant or a testament does not go into effect without a death. 
And so it's not baby Jesus laying in the manger that begins the New Testament. It's not baby Jesus in Bethlehem that begins the New Covenant. Uh, It is Jesus Christ hanging on a cross with blood all over him. It's blood that initiates a covenant. And that's why even the first covenant was not initiated without blood. Uh, Moses sprinkled blood over the scroll and over all the people. Now, that's a church service I'm willing to miss. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that's the reality with God and covenants and blood, that blood initiates a covenant. Now, this is really important for us because, again, you can try to marry all of the words of Jesus to all of the words of Paul and Peter and James and John and try to concoct a beautiful covenant, but it's just not happening Uh, You won't find any epistle in the entire New Testament telling us to sell all of our possessions uh, in order to inherit the kingdom of God, Uh, nor will you find that a new covenant believer is supposed to worry about their body being thrown into hell. And so you say, well, then who is Jesus talking to and what's his point? What's his purpose? And I think we've already hit the nail on the head that, you know, he is burying people under the old covenant. He's talking to a Jewish audience. As Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, he was born under law so that he might redeem those who are under law. And, you know, without seeing this context clearly, uh, the gospel itself can become very murky. I mean, even, even the Lord's Prayer that we recite in churches across the world Uh, We recite it up until the end, almost, but we stop short. Uh, The Lord's Prayer goes on to say, If you forgive others, God will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, God won't forgive you. And that's Jesus' conclusion. Well, ouch, man. I mean, that's not the New Covenant message. The New Covenant message is forgive others because God already forgave you. Uh, You know, Colossians 3.13 and Ephesians 4.32, they both say the same thing. Forgive others because God already forgave you. And now Jesus, if you rewind back to Matthew there, Jesus is saying, uh, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Well, is my forgiveness in jeopardy? Is God really going to measure how much forgiving I've done lately and then issue to me that same level of forgiveness? Well, context is everything. Who's he talking to? What's he trying to do here? Well, the Pharisees, they went away mad about what he was saying. And as I said, the rich man, he went away, went away sad about what he was saying. He's, he's purposely creating this reaction um, to show them the end of themselves, that they can never earn it. They can never do it. And that they're going to need all this righteousness as a gift. Yeah. And, you know, as at first at first hearing that may sound odd why why would he do that but if we think about how change happens in anybody or any group of people oftentimes their assumptions about what is and what they're able to do have to be exposed before they can see wait a minute i can't do this myself I need something superior to me to um, be working here, an energy and a life that is superior to me. Um, you know, or even look at the addict. I mean, an addict's um, ability to make life work on her own has to be exposed before she can experience the true freedom of God's indwelling spirit. And so it makes sense, 
that Jesus would really up the ante, um, kind of put Moses of 1.0 on steroids. So, so to prove to them, look, if you really want to follow the law, we're going to get down to the deep, nitty-gritty intent so that you can see there's absolutely not a thing you can do. It's, it's, it's an object in futility. And uh, so I thought that that section of the book was really helpful because I can't tell you when I was growing up, we would quote the Lord's Prayer in church and came to that passage every time, unless you forgive, you won't be forgiven by your father. And I did not know what to do with it because I didn't have the framework of understanding how Jesus' own ministry unfolded in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it's a critical thing, and people people may uh, have issues with it and wrestle with it, but the bottom line is you're going to have to go back to those verses, and you're going to have to wrestle with uh, the fact that this is not a bit of holy living that Jesus is suggesting. It's not uh, a little bit of whipped cream of behavior improvement on top of your salvation. I mean, this is actually your salvation in jeopardy. Uh, this is heaven or hell. This is either inheriting the kingdom of heaven, as he said to the rich man, or this is being thrown into hell, as he says in Matthew as well. So, you know, when Christians look at that passage and say, oh, he's just saying, do your best. Well, if that's true, then he's saying, do your best or be thrown into hell. <laughs> do your best and maybe you'll make it into the kingdom of heaven. That The kingdom and hell is the context of that passage, and there's no way we can talk around that. Yeah, and if we don't understand that he, he wasn't speaking to us on the other side of the cross. He wasn't speaking to us today. Mm-hmm. That Those passages do not have direct application because they, they were intended for his audience of the day. Jews, those living under the law, trying to make life work using the law. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's not us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that's a really helpful differentiation that I think will set a lot of people free from wondering if their salvation is in jeopardy, in fact. Yeah, well, um, and if there is an application for a person today, let's say somebody, you know, I've met lots of people, they say things like, uh, well, I don't know if I'm going to heaven or not, but I sure am trying my best. Well, you know, it, it might be helpful for them to see, you know, Jesus said, if you're trying your best, all you have to do is surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. Mm, yeah. Uh, you know? I mean, so there is an application to a person that believes that in them, in themselves and in their own ability that they think they're doing just fine. The words of Jesus will sadden you. <laughs> the words of Jesus will depress you. The words of Jesus will defeat you uh, if you're on that road. But, you know, you just got to see the end of the story. It's like a do I watch an Alfred Hitchcock film and then shut it uh, off with 30 minutes to go? Or do I read a Stephen King novel and put it down with 30 pages left? No, I want to read because there's a surprise and an ending, and it, it can change the way that I interpret everything that came before it. Well, you know, there's a surprise ending with the crucifixion and the resurrection and the gift of righteousness, the free gift. And, and it changes the way that I look back on Leviticus and it changes the way that I look back on Exodus, and it changes the way I look back on some of the words of Jesus, uh, and it's really important to see that. 
Yeah, and that's that's a great point about today's application. Um, and you know, you could almost construct um, a way for showing people who are desperately trying to live under the law. Well, if you are, then this is what it means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this this the end result of trying to do that. Um, and use that passage looking backwards for someone who's not living from spirit, from grace. Um, okay, I want to wrap up today, um, but next time um, in, in, in the next podcast of the series, I thought we'd talk about attending our own funeral mm-hmm. and, and why grace won't work for anybody. Um, and just as a little uh, side note to that, um, so people don't think, well, grace isn't, oh, I, gosh, I mean, we take things so it personally internalize things like that. Well, what do you mean? Grace doesn't work for me? Well, no, there's something in that that it, it doesn't work for people who aren't new. Mm-hmm. And the good news is you are. So, Drew, um, what's the best place they, they can go to for videos, podcasts, more about your book? Where would you send them? Uh, well, they can go to andrewfarley.org, and uh, that's my author site at andrewfarley.org. They can download free chapters of my books, and they can also see videos and interviews and stuff. Um, so andrewfarley.org is the best spot. Great. And um, I'm going to post this and the subsequent podcast on my website, thegoodandnobleheart.com and on Facebook and so we can get this message out here. Drew, it's been great as usual. Always a meaningful conversation. I look forward to the next one. Hey, thank you. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.